Welcome and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. Have you ever asked yourself, who am I? No matter what your background, today's sermon will help you answer that question. Here's First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page with the sermon, The Story We Find Ourselves In. Well, if you don't know who I am, my name is Steve Page, one of the pastors here on staff, and it's my pleasure to bring to you the Word of God this morning. And we're going to read from uh, mostly from John 1, but a little bit out of John 3, and a tiny bit out of Romans 11. I'm going to put it all in a row for you here so we can have it in our minds. I'm meditating on that as I preach the Word of God. So if you're able, please stand with me as I read from John 1 and other places. <clears throat> and it goes like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who are born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. We have seen his glory, the glory that belongs to the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then in John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For from him... Through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You joined in with the amen with Paul there. That was great. Hey, so how's your Christmas shopping going? Only 10 more days till Christmas, which means for most men we have nine more days to procrastinate. Good job. Now, if you're anything like me... I, I get nearly paralyzed when I have to think about gifts that I get by for Christmas. But I saw this one gift online the other day that kind of intrigued me. Some of you probably heard of it, 23andMe as a Christmas gift, you know, where you find out your DNA background. I like the headline on the box there, welcome to you. It's so American. Yeah, I don't know if that's an invitation or narcissism. I'm not sure what that is. But, um, but it's increasingly common these days for people to investigate their family line, their DNA history, you know, their, their historical origins uh, for some reason. And companies like 23andMe or Ancestry.com are huge players in this. But it all causes me to ask the question, what is it about our origins that speaks to our present realities to help make sense of it? Why are we so fascinated and feel it almost vital to our lives to have a fuller understanding of our own story. You know, I think it's due in part because we humans, our story people, we're story-making and story-telling machines. I mean, think about it. How many living things other than us on the planet Earth tell stories? I'm not sure your dog and cats do that with each other while you're gone, okay? 
But stories are how we make sense of the world. It's, it's how we make sense of our particular life. It gives us a, a rich sense of, of identity and it helps answer, you know, it helps answer the deeply vital questions of our heart of to whom do I belong? And so much of our meaning and sense of belonging is forged out of the stories we find ourselves in. And today I want to reflect on the story that we all live in, whatever your DNA background is. The story that Christmas reminds us of. A grand and powerful story that can change and heal our culture, heal our world, and heal us as individuals as it did Aaron. And I also, in addition to that, want us to reflect on as we go along how when we disconnect ourselves or when we disconnect others from that divine story, we can end up with a whole lot of pain and even destruction in our personal lives and in our culture. You know, it's funny, but for me personally, I never ever thought about using 23andMe or whatever to look into my background or into my identity because it was drilled into me as a kid. I'm one of those rare people today that even though I'm a third-generation American, I still have only one singular ethnic background. I am Serbian. I'm not Italian. Everybody thinks I'm Italian because I talk like this, okay? I'm Serbian, full Serbian. My grandparents, aunties, uncles all came over on the boat in the early 20th century. And they were so centered on their Serbian story that when when my parents were young, they were not allowed to date non-Serbian people. And I remember my mother telling the story that when she was a teenager, she had this mad crush on this Italian guy, and her mother found out. And when my, when my grandmother did find out, she nearly fainted with grief, and she forbade my, my mother to go out with those people. That's where Italians were to us, those people. And the family and the ethnic story is so strongly forged of my identity as a young kid that it really, it kind of dominated my perspective of myself. And it really, and it nearly caused me to do something really dumb when I went overseas for the first time. You know how it is, some of you have traveled, you know, where you fill out on those forms before you land in a foreign country, you fill out a line that says nationality. So when I saw nationality, I wrote, of course, Serbian. Yeah, pretty dumb, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't until the plane was, had landed and people were shuffling off. And, you know, I was new to go overseas and travel, so I'm looking at other people's pieces of paper. And I see a lot of people put for a nationality, American. I'm thinking, American's not a nationality. And I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, it is, you know. <laughs> they weren't asking me what was my ethnicity. They were asking me what nation am I a citizen of. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to be really bad when I get to customs. It's going to say Serbian, but with an American passport. Not good. <laughs> really dumb, I know. Um, but, 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 but fortunately, I was, I was able to catch it in time and I made the change. But the point is this. You know, my Serbian story, my Serbian identity totally overshadowed and even marginalized my American identity, which was a part of, which was a big part of my life, you know? Even my, I mean, you know, think about it. it really, American identity is really the bigger part uh, of my story, even more so than being Serbian. But it's, it's easy, isn't it, to confuse or overemphasize our identities because we forget that we are part of a bigger story that really gives us an identity. Now, don't get me wrong, being Serbian and being American are important parts of the story I find myself in, important and valuable parts that do make up the identity in which I walk. However, I must always keep in mind that those stories are always second stories. 
In John 1 and Romans 11, there's a greater story still in which I belong. And to ignore it or diminish it or to marginalize it creates a world of hurt, both personally and socially. Let me show you what I mean. John chapter 1, we just read it. Verse 3 and 4 says this. Now notice the comprehensive statements. All things came into being through him, which is Jesus. And without him, not one thing came into being. In him was life. Not in being Serbian was life. Not in being American was life. For being a man, a woman, a conservative, a liberal, a, a socialist, a conservative, whatever it is. But it's in him that was life. And that life was the light of all people. And Paul sums it up so poetically in Romans 11. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. In other words, all of who you are as an individual, all of who we are as a human race has its source, has its sustenance, has its inevitable uh, destiny and purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? But don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that we're called into be some kind of boring, monochrome society where all of us look and talk and eat and dress and vote exactly the same way. All those things that make us different is exactly, is exactly what can make our culture and make our world look so beautiful and glorious. Even our political differences, yes, even they too can add to the richness and beauty of life. But that inherent biological drive to belong and to be distinct can also cut the other way when you make second stories the first story. We see it every day in the news. We see it all over online, okay? We see it everywhere. But I want to make it clear. You know, as I said before, being Serbian is definitely part of my story, my distinctive place in this grand narrative of human history, and that's a great thing because it attaches me to a community, a history, where I can find a sense of self and belonging. But when that sense, but when that sense of identity gets detached from God's narrative and the fundamental identity I have in him, I can easily try, uh, slide into what it was called a tribal mentality. Social uh, psychologists and anthropologists have long made it clear that we humans, we have an intuitive sense of tribe. We have a hardwired biological, biological drive to create communities of belonging and distinction. It has helped ensure our survival as a species for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But as I mentioned, that drive to be tribal can cut both ways. It can divide and destroy as much as it can unite and preserve. If, 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 I know most, if not all of us, are sitting here thinking, well, I would never be so tribal as to divide and destroy. Well, let me share with you a very tribal story about Christians. The country of Rwanda has two main ethnic groups, the Hutu and the Tutsis. In 1994, the president of Rwanda and one of the main figures of the ethnic group, of, of an ethnic group, was on board a plane that was shot down. And nobody knew who was responsible for shooting down of that plane. But the shooting down of that plane led to a series of events that end up with statistics like this. In just 100 days, just 100 days, 800,000 people were slaughtered. 8,000 a day, and many of them were slaughtered with, with, with farm implements and machetes. And all this took place in a country the size of Vermont. 
by any moral scale that is mind-boggling. But what you should also know what makes these stats even more tragic is this, that Rwanda in 1994 was 90% Christian. 90% Christian. Now, I know there's many complicated reasons for this tragic incident. But for of the many reasons, there is at least this reason. Their Christian story became secondary to their tribal story. Their ethnic stories and concerns became disconnected from God's story, God's love, God's grace, God's truth, God's value of, of, of other people. I want to ask you a question. What happens when your story, when our ethnic story, our patriotic story, our political story gets disconnected from God's story, gets disconnected from God's love, disconnected from God's grace and truth and value of other people? How do we start to think? Unified or divided? How do we start to feel? How do we start to act towards unity or division? And this is why I read John 3, 16 and 17, because it too has the message of Christmas. And it tells us why Jesus came to earth, and it expresses both his heart as well as his mission. I'm going to read it briefly again. I know it's familiar to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but they have eternal life. And indeed, God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. He sent him so that the world might be saved through him. These are huge things to understand, to grasp the significance of those statements. We need to understand the word world as it's used in the Gospel of John. When the word world is used, it's almost exclusively used in a negative way. It has negative overtones. In John, the world isn't that beautiful green-blue planet that fills up our galaxy. The world represents all that is resistant and rebellious towards God. It is a summary word for all the sinful institutions and and systems that we live in as human beings. But it's that very world, that very rebellious, sin-soaked, worthy of condemnation world that is so passionately loved by our God. Now let me get real. People of our world are not always good. In fact, they're sometimes pretty lousy. But as these verses imply, they are always, they are always cherished and sacred to God. And that little fact changes everything. Not that people have never sinned. It's not that people have never done evil. It's not that some people don't deserve to be incarcerated but that they are in every moment, even in addictions, sacred and cherished by God. As John, makes, John 3 makes clear, sin never disqualifies us from love. Can you burn that in your hearts this morning? Or is that too hard to kind of internalize? Sin never disqualifies us from love. And that's our story point as we frame and treat others regardless of their second story, regardless of their tribal story, regardless of their political stance. These sentiments remind me of a statement that Christian writer philosopher Dallas Willard said, our relations to others cannot be right unless we see those others in their relation to God. Even in their ruined condition, A human being is regarded by God 
as something immensely worth saving. Sin never makes us worthless, only lost. I love that expression. Notice how he encourages us to see others in the relation, not to their story or your story, but to God's story. In other words, we must be careful. We must be very careful, especially in today's climate, to not primarily see others in relation to their political stances or ideologies, their nationality, their ethnicity, their gender, their religion, or whatever, but instead see people in their relation to God. And that relation to God always imparts to any and every person an immense worth, as Willard put it. When we can't do this, when we refuse to do this, it becomes a very easy step to start to demonize other people and create enemies where God has none. You may not think that can happen, but it can. Just like what happened with the bombing of Agrabah. Do you remember the bombing of Agrabah? In 2015, a polling agency called Public Policy Polling asked a national survey of over 1,000 Americans during the political primaries. Would you support or oppose bombing Agrabah? Here's the outcome. 30% of Republicans said, yes, we should bomb it. Only 13% opposed it. 20% of Democrats said, yes, we should bomb it. 36% said that they should oppose it. Now, statistically speaking, that means... 25% of Americans were willing to bomb a city and a situation and a people they knew nothing about. And I say they knew nothing about them because Agrabah is a fictional, vaguely Arab country from the Disney movie Aladdin. (laughs) So what's the point of my story? Agrabah, that sounds like a city of that other tribe that we're at war with. And that was enough to give us reason to call down destruction. What in the world are we doing? When our beliefs and decisions toward others, including decisions that may include violence, are not informed by God's love, informed by his grace, informed by his truth, informed by the value, his value of other people, When his story is not our first story, we can make decisions that create a whole world of unnecessary pain. Maybe not with bombs, but with words and actions that denigrate and dehumanize those different from us, from our identities, from our tribes. And isn't that what we did during World War II with a bunch of people that were Americans, but they looked like our enemy they talked like our enemy. They dressed like our enemy. They, they, they ate like our enemy, the Japanese. And so we interred them because they were those people. We forgot the right story. Brothers and sisters, Satan doesn't need to possess us or throw us writhing on the floor with demon possession to completely ruin us, to completely ruin our culture or or, or ruin our relationships. All he needs to do, all Satan needs to do is to marginalize and detach us from the divine story and he is good to go. Look, we all know we live in a very, very, very divided era. And there are endless things that divide us. There will always be endless things that divide us theologically, philosophically, politically, racially, ethnically, you name it. But we Christians, 
We Christians have an incredible opportunity, especially in this day, to heal our culture through our story. Brothers and sisters, we're not called by God to combat culture, but to transform it, to elevate it, so that we might win the people who compose our culture and invite them into the grand story of God. We stand in a moment in our cultural history where we as Christians have a decision to make. We can either fuel the divide or we can heal it with a story that heals all stories. What choice are you making today? Now let me turn to the more personal aspect of all this good and wonderful, loving and gracious news. And John 1 Again, it says in verse 14 and 16, The Word became flesh and lived among us. We have seen His glory, and the glory belongs to the one and only Son who came from the Father. He came from the Father full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, we have all received a little bit of grace. A tiny bit of grace. No. We have all received Grace upon grace. That's John's way of saying abundant grace like this gigantic waterfall, right? And, and I find it fascinating, you know, a, a fascinating way to describe Jesus' coming to earth. Why does John highlight these particular features of his life and ministry? I can only speculate. But after studying a little bit about counseling psychology, I think I can understand why John especially emphasizes these qualities. See, first of all, I don't think John meant that Jesus came to us with a truckload of of abstract propositional truths that we take into our philosophy courses and we discuss thoroughly. I don't think that's what he meant. The Bible is not a bunch of theological propositional statements listed in a row for us to memorize. It expresses truth, but it expresses truth mostly through story, through poetry, because God and truth are not mere abstractions. They're far more than that. I think by truth, John meant that Jesus showed us what God is truly like. I think by truth, Jesus, he said Jesus showed us the truth about his love and mercy towards those who are sinful and annoying, like Serbians who only think about themselves. Jesus showed us the truth about what to do with marginalized and corrupt people. Jesus showed us the truth about who you really are, even as you fall into addictions or other terrible things, like our poor brother Aaron. When you listen to Aaron's story, what did it take for him to get better? Well, in large part, it was when he started to deal with the truth as it was wrapped in grace. See, here's the deal. No one gets better. No relationship gets better, no family gets better, no marriage gets better, no community gets better, no nation gets better without facing and dealing with the truth. Dealing with the truth of their problem, the truth of their brokenness, their sin, their pain, or what have you. Here's the thing. You will never hear someone say this. You know, it's amazing how my anxiety improved as I started to live in deeper denial. Why is it that we can never hear that, that, that phrase put together? It's absolute gibberish, isn't it? Because we can't get better without the truth. David Benner puts it really well. He says, reality must be embraced before it can be changed. Our knowing, uh, our knowing of ourselves will remain superficial until we are willing to accept ourselves as God accepts us, fully 
unconditionally, just as we are. Until we are willing to accept the unpleasant truths of our existence, we rationalize and deny responsibility for our behavior. You can never become other than who you are until, until you are willing to embrace the reality of who you are. Then you can truly become who you are most deeply called to be. In other words, you can finally live deeply into the true story of, of God's story for your life. But I love those two statements, how he bookends. Reality must be embraced before it can be changed. Then you become who you can truly are. Brothers and sisters, truth See, truth is, is, is important not simply so that we don't sin, but so that our lives are not wasted. That's why it's important. So that we are able to live into what we're most deeply called to be in this world. Now, let me ask you something. Does all that truth encourage you? Do you want to face the truth? Do you want somebody to tell you the truth about you? What needs to be changed? Does facing the truth excite you or scare you to death? And I know for a lot of us it can sound scary because few of us have, have experienced people who have expressed the truth about us to us without using it like a hammer or leaving in its wake a whole bunch of shame. And this is why grace is the other side of the Jesus coin in John. Without grace, truth, as good as important as it is, can become ruthless. So many of us fear hearing the truth or fear facing the truth because it can feel like a sledgehammer or a shame creator and not a chain breaker like truth was intended to be. It was meant to break chains, not to bring shame. But the only way truth is going to bring, uh, break chains and not shame is because when we speak truth in the Jesus story, amen? No one can become healed or more whole without dealing with the truth, but not just the truth of our shortcomings, however, but the truth of God's unbreakable love for us, the truth of his passionate interest in us, the truth of his natural instinct to pour out grace upon grace. If you struggle with shame, as I have, I have really struggled with shame in my life, it is so hard to internalize that picture of God pouring out grace upon grace. For us who struggle with shame, we kind of picture God giving us grace with grit teeth. Kind of, like, kind of like when you get to the end of that tube of toothpaste, and you're like, ah, you know, that's how we see God giving us grace. All right, here, I'm God. I guess I got to give it to you, you know. Because, because for people who struggle with shame, our primary story, our primary story about ourselves is that we're defective that we're deficient, that we are hopelessly flawed, unlovable, and rejectable. We have this deep-seated belief that people don't want to give us grace. And so to protect our hearts, to protect our hearts from being crushed under this, this graceless story that we tell ourselves, we do all kinds of things to keep shame at bay. We become perfectionists. So no one can criticize us. We become people pleasers to stave off rejection. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Or we'll reach for booze or prescription drugs or, or buy the next shiny thing that we really can't afford just to keep at bay, even if it's just for a little while, the feelings of shame. And as Aaron so eloquently put it, 
When we use these kinds of things as coping mechanisms, we become, at the end of the day, soulfully exhausted. Does anybody understand soulful exhaustion to try to keep it all together? You know, there's a lot I can say about this issue. We don't have much time, but I'm going to share as I finish here a brief story of how this can all work out in real life because it just happened last week. A person in our church was burdened by anxiety because born out of a very deeply embarrassing situation that she had went through. And she just needed to talk to a pastor at church. But I wasn't around. She was looking for me. I was out of the office. And, but one of our admin staff asked how she could help. And the woman expressed the truth of her anxiety, the truth, and uh, she was just totally honest about her embarrassing and maybe shame-filled incident. And, and, and our administrator, uh, administrative person talked to her a bit and then prayed for her. Now, here's what that woman, as I talked to her later that day, because I finally got a hold of her, this is what she said to me about one of our administrators. Her prayers were so powerful, Steve, she prayed the ugly away. Isn't that a great statement? I love that expression because it captures what so many people feel about themselves. Ugly inside. And it also captures what can happen when grace and truth meet in the story of Jesus. The woman shared the truth of her heart and our staff person prayed grace into that truth and washed the ugly away. Brothers and sisters, grace is not some kind of saccharine nicety. It is power. It has the power to break the chain of shame. And I have a feeling that maybe more than a few of us this morning are chained up. Chained up by the ugly we feel inside. Chained up by the unresolved hurt and pain, loneliness, sense of betrayal. Chained up by, as Aaron put it, a cycle of self-loathing and performance for approval. And we feel exhausted by using wrong solutions to break those chains and change the story you find yourself in. If you feel that way, I want to invite you after our service to come forward for prayer. Because our prayer team is equipped with, with, with spiritual chain cutters, okay? And they can infuse your story with God's story. God's story of love, grace, and truth, and freedom. But for now, as the worship team comes up here, I just want to close your eyes and pray a little bit, just between you and God. What is God saying to you? Get real. Get truthful. Are there chains in your life that need breaking? Are there mentalities that you have, attitudes of tribalism that denigrate and dehumanize others? Bring that to the Lord. As I said before, before you leave, if you need prayer, there'll be a, a prayer team to my left and to my right, and they really want to pray to break some chains today. If you've got chains that need breaking, please do not leave here without some prayer over you. If you are in that place today and you're going, my gosh, Steve, my story stinks. I need my story rewritten. Then today is the day to do that. Today's the day to begin that journey and give your life to Jesus. So if you're able, please stand in as I give this blessing. May the Lord Jesus Christ fill you with courage as you face truth. May he fill you with cap uh, compassion as you give grace. May you be his hands and arms and ears and words to people that they may experience the truth of the greatest story of all, that God loves them and has grace upon grace 
for them. May you be that instrument, that vessel of grace to the world. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be all the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Be in peace. The great uniter in our world is Jesus Christ. The things that divide us take a backseat to our identity in him. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Pres website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us at one of our worship services on campus at 45550 Ole Road, Kaneohe, Hawaii, 96744. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.11. Follow First Prez on Twitter and Facebook. Download the new First Prez app. Watch First Prez sermon videos on our website and on Facebook. And if you need more, call us at 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, Merry Christmas, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2019 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau.